it's my honor to introduce to you Eric Hipple. Eric Hipple, he's a former NFL star quarterback for 10 years with the Detroit Lions and was MVP. He's a graduate from Utah State University with a degree in business administration and was drafted in 1980. He's the bereaved father of beloved 15-year-old Jeff Hipple. I am honored to present Eric Hipple this afternoon to all of you who will be speaking to us about dealing with sudden loss. Bienvenido, Eric. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much for the opportunity and, and also for the introduction. I've been involved in, um, in mental health and, uh, and grief transition uh, for quite a while now. Um, and I, behind me, you know, I got some of my football stuff behind me. And um, from the outside, you probably look and say, wow, you know, you got everything going for you. And in fact, I really did have a great childhood growing up, a super supportive father, um, coaches that were always there for me, starting quarterback, high school, college, pros. And so there's a lot of stuff going for me. Um, I did retire in the season of uh, 89. And um, went on to the form business and start to work in the, the business world and started a company. But it was on April 9th, year 2000, I was on a business trip out in Vancouver and I was having lunch and I had this very euphoric feeling that came over me, uh, like I've never really experienced before. And it was the sun was shining, we we're out at an outdoor cafe and everything just seemed to like, vibrate and kind of glow and just euphoric feeling came over me and, it, and then it passed and I thought that was strange I've never felt that before and it was kind of like exhilarating and um, after we finished lunch we went back to the um, uh, to the place we were staying and my client we were talking and then uh, a phone call came and um, he answered the phone and then he handed it to me and there's a kind of a look of weirdness on his face and they handed it to me and uh, it's my wife and she said, are you sitting down? I said, what's going on? And she said, uh, Jeff is dead. My son, 15 years old, um, died by suicide that day, uh, about an hour and a half earlier uh, while I was having lunch. The crushing moment at that time, it was just so heavy. I just shocked. I could not believe it. Wailing tears came down from me. Um, it was just so surreal going down to the airport, getting on an emergency flight, flying home, had to see the body. Um, I just couldn't believe it. And, um, and I saw my son, and uh, this is a picture of him, by the way. You know, you're talking about, uh, I thought I'd show Jeff here uh, when he was 15. Um, but I had to see him just to believe it. And, um, and here I am looking at him, and the first thing that popped in my head is, I cannot live with this. You know, uh, I can't live with this. And the pain was so great, uh, the guilt, the shame, um, how can I let this happen? And it was, that was the driving force of just, I cannot live with this is what I felt. But I know what it feels like now when somebody dies by suicide, what the other people feel like, because I am now one of them, and how painful that is. And so I knew I couldn't take my life at this point in time. You know, I just, I would not put that on somebody else now because I know what it feels like. So I went down the pathway of uh, just being numb. I mean, that became my pathway of not dealing with this. I, the pain was so 
severe uh, that I was afraid of it. I was afraid of uh, what it meant. I was afraid of what it meant as me as a father. I was afraid of um, of getting lost and not being able to survive. And so um, I started, you know, self-medicating. So alcohol was the main thing. Um, so I went down that pathway. During this time, I did go see a grief counselor, but it wasn't. It, it was really to see him to help me stop tears from flowing during the middle of the day, um, because that's also embarrassing for a man. And so when I would be in front of people, that also the trigger would hit and, and tears would start flowing. Um, I would remove myself. Finally, through his grief the tools, which was fantastic, one was the one where you, you hold a candle and you set a time up to grieve by lighting that candle at a certain point in time of the day. And then that's the time you can unload everything. And it really, really did help with the tears from falling because I could postpone it until that moment. But it didn't help deal with the pain that I was feeling. And as a time went on, um, I started looking at other avenues, what to do with this, because eventually I ended up um, being arrested on a DUI and I spent 90 days in jail, um, actually 58 days of those 90 days I spent in jail. And coming out of that was the time where I thought, well, I've got to get a handle on this. I don't want this to be my legacy, and I certainly don't want it to be my son's. So I find out, found a place to go through, but what I was looking for was, you know, how to make me feel better, because I don't feel right. I'm depressed, I'm down. And so I went to a place called the University of Michigan, which is fantastic. Um, they just started a, a depression center, and um, I received treatment for depression, and eventually a purpose. Uh, they hired me to be an outreach spokesman, and so I started pouring myself into the mental health field, how to help navigate through this mental health piece. I went on pretty good, and I started, you know, putting programs together and, and working through that and reaching out and helping people, talking on suicide prevention, but I still wasn't a whole, even though um, the depression certainly was much better, uh, but I would still go through these dips where they would come along, and, and at some point in time, something would happen and it would affect me and i would kind of drop off the radar map for a while so it would just be these blips that would come and then uh, some of the self-medication would come back into play um i just wanted to be numb traveling on the road i would be a lot more alone in my hotel room and and uh and that would that's how i would deal with it but again you know it was pretty productive in fact the good things that came from that and trying to honor jeff's death and then trying to do uh, positive outcomes for that I got involved with the military and doing suicide prevention work and traveled with the US Fleet Forces. Uh, we started doing programs and um, I think I did that for over a period of 11 years. Started working a school program, um, one in Michigan called Be Nice, but also for uh, different several foundations. I started getting involved in uh, my own football uh, retirees, I guess is the best way to find former players and um, in, in head injury and, and their depressions and and uh, started focusing on even that transition with that with that with that piece of it means but i still wasn't 100 percent. i was still struggling along the way and occasionally when i would do a suicide prevention talk or somebody would come to me and ask me questions it would get too close um to the fire and um, i would have another setback and just feel like this is just too much and try and step back and i would lose a couple steps but going through that you know it was it was a Cathartic time. We I ended up uh, putting together a uh, a book for uh, called Real Men Do Cry. Thanks to a couple of fantastic therapists, uh, 
Gloria and Heidi, in fact. So they, uh, they helped me write the book and put it together. And that helped me quite a bit, pulling things through. But as time went on, um, still was not 100%. And I just don't know, I didn't know what was missing. So I kept trying to chase medical reasons for it. It wasn't until the, uh, the death of my father five years ago that uh, a lot of the stuff came forward. And so after his death, I had to leave um he he spent two weeks had us all over to his house um he was staying with my sister and uh had us over there and um he just decided you know he's not gonna take any more medication so he had two weeks where he could be there and um and as he died and told us stories about his childhood told us stories about and this was just a magical time but i ended up leaving before he passed away i went on a business uh, trip on a speaking engagement and i took it rather than postponing it and um, that didn't feel right with me. You know, I felt still something, I shouldn't have done that. And so when he passed away, all these guilt feelings and all this shame and stuff kind of fell, fell back in my lap again. And, and um, I started struggling again. Finally, um, after another incident, um, this was a couple of years ago, another incident came up. I finally got in front of a therapist that opened up a, a door that I hadn't had before. And I, I'll say that it was probably there before. I just couldn't see it. Maybe I wasn't ready for it. Uh, but this time it came forward and we discussed, you know, complicated grief. And um, I started looking at all the pieces put together. And I, and I think some of the stuff that was being talked about, transition stuff through COVID right now, I think it really plays into how all these things we don't see maybe a loss as a death loss is not being grief-worthy, it really is. And if we don't pay attention to it, it can really complicate grief when it really lands in our lap. And so I want to try and connect some of those dots. So as I uh, played for 10 years, I was in the middle of my 10th year uh, when I was cut, released from the team after playing a terrible game. And nobody likes to leave uh, their profession in a bad way. Um, I did. Uh, I also had a lot of I was really driven by not wanting to be a disappointment. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, I wanted the approval. I wanted to, to win. I wanted acceptance. And that really drove a lot of my childhood and, and college years up to this point. So now I'm done. The business that I started actually did really, really well to start off with. But then that transition piece, as I said, I wore a uniform from nine years old until 32 years old. And that's gone. And so my identity that was kind of corrupt up in that person, and, and um, that's how I knew the world was as a football player, uh, was different. My support system was gone. Uh, relationships have changed. The money is turned off. And um, really don't know who I am and was kind of lost in that space and trying to regain, but started the business and it started doing really well. The trouble is after about six years of that, you know, that grief from that loss of identity caught up and I started feeling like a failure. The business wasn't doing what I thought it was, should be doing. And it got to the point where I actually was driving to the airport. I wasn't driving. I was a passenger. My wife was driving. Um, and she was driving because I wasn't doing really well. She could see it. Uh, we got close to the airport and I felt like I just couldn't go any further. And I jumped out of the car that was going 75 miles an hour. I wrote her a little quick note saying, I'm sorry, I love you. And I handed it to her and I jumped. 
I survived the uh, the freeway incident. I didn't get hit by a car. They swerved. They didn't hit me, but at 75 miles an hour, I was pretty messed up. And I woke up in the hospital and uh, woke up and uh, been a few days. Uh, my parents had already gotten there from Michigan, excuse me, from California to Michigan. And every opportunity to, to reach out and do help and ask for help at that time didn't happen. In fact, I refused it. Uh, stigma was part of the playing that, but also I was still stuck in that idea that I don't want to be a disappointment. People are going to see me reaching out for help as a disappointment and as weak. And so I pushed off. So carrying that with me um, into Jeff's death, um, I had gone through divorce and Jeff was going back and forth between my ex-wife and myself. He was living with us the time that he died. And that failure since set in and that shame and the guilt and all that rode along with it. And so trying to recover from that was, was a very difficult thing to do. And in fact, um, uh, I don't know that, I, as I said, I don't know I fully recovered from that. But not until I tied it until the point where my, my father, when he died, then I felt like I was never the son that I should have been. So I got both ends of the spectrums where uh, one, I felt like I wasn't the father like my father was. And now uh, when my father died, I feel like I wasn't the son that I should have been you know, for him because I left before he passed away. And all that stuff just came barreling down on me. The, um, I did, like I said, found the therapist and, uh, and it worked quite well and finding my way through it. That complicated grief from tied into your own self doubts or your own trauma, your own transition can really affect the way that a loss happens to you and how you perceive yourself and how that healing process happens. And um, I was unable to get through that piece because of that complicated grief. I kept replaying it in my head, and I just wouldn't allow myself to accept, you know, that I was human. And so, going through those those pieces, you know, I've I've learned quite a bit now, and um, I've learned a lot quite a bit along the way. Uh, one of the main things I'm really focused in on is transitional issues. And so, as we talk in this COVID era, you know huge uh, losses are going on. People are losing businesses. People are losing, um, you know, their uh, their homes. People are losing their jobs. People are losing, um, you know, who they thought they were going to be. They're losing their futures. And so there's a lot of loss in that. And I think we should really look at some of that transitional stuff just as a loss as we would someone else. Because if we don't, we don't have a chance to agree with it or to adapt to it and to accept it, then it's going to affect us at some point in time when we have um, a loss that's, that's uh, a grieving loss, and it might complicate those issues. As far as after death communication, that moment when I was standing in, uh, sitting there having lunch, and that before feeling that hit me uh, was so powerful. Um, then I looked back on the when he when he actually died, the moment he died, I was actually sitting at lunch, and I feel that he just passed through me, and um, so that's something I can take with me because it was a feeling of expression like, you're going to be okay. Things are just wonderful. Things are good. And so beautiful, in fact. And so I had that with me. And, and that's something I can take with me now and really look at and put it together. Um, honoring uh, Jeff and trying to do the work that I do has been uh, uh, a great piece for me as well. Uh, getting involved, reaching out, helping others. But I also want to bring it back into mental health as well. Because if we're not careful and this complicated grief 
can really take us away from what it means to be a mentally healthy person. First of all, just the avoidance practices that we take. If I don't want to uh, feel pain or anxiety, then I will avoid it. And I can avoid it in many different ways. I can avoid it by being a workaholic and not talking with my family. I can avoid it by substance use and trying to be numb and not being part of the world. I can avoid it by being uh, caught up in drama and there's always gotta be something going on in trauma and, and chaos. Um, I can avoid it by shutting down and isolating. So there's many uh, ways that we can uh, be unhealthy um, if we don't, aren't able to um, uh, feel the pain and, and take things head on. And so um, that's part of it. The mental health uh, uh, as well, you know, has to do with what we can do. Uh, one of the biggest things um, I think that comes along with grief is the pain that's associated with it and not wanting to feel it. And so fear steps in. And if I fear something, you know, um, you know, the fight or flight kicks in, 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 in a, in a urgency, in an urgency, it kicks in. So, you know, I might fight something or avoid it. If I have, um, if I'm cornered, I might fight. If not, I'm probably going to run. But the thing is, if you don't know what to fight, there's nothing there to fight. You don't have a handle on it. You can't see it. But the only thing you can do is run. And so trying to stay in front of it, trying to outrun it, um, leads again to avoidance, trying to push it behind us and try not to deal with it. And again, that's not going through the grief process. There's also ways that we can deal with it. So just sitting in the fear for a moment and saying, it's okay, I can sit here. I can be in this. Um, I've gone through this. Um, and it gives me the motivation to sit there and just not panic and not run, but feel it. And that way I can deal with it because fear can also be a motivating factor. If I, if I can face it and hold on to it and embrace it, then also motivates me to do things. So it might motivate me to reach out to someone and talk. It might, um, motivate me to work with somebody in the foundation it might motivate me to, um, accomplish something that I wouldn't have accomplished before, but giving back and being uh, open uh, to those things. And so it can be motivational as well. The other things, you know, as far as uh, health goes, you know, mental health, um, meditation, trying to sit, you know, whether it's fear or just trying to sit in that and um, with your thoughts. Now meditation one way is, you know, uh, where I can clear my mind and not have these intrusive thoughts bombard me because I can just let go of all thought. There's also mindfulness, right, which is a little different, but mindfulness means I can be present and I can allow these thoughts to come to me and just ponder them. Where do they come from? What's their origin? And then, you know, handle them and then let them go. Just being present in that moment, not worried about the future and not worried about the past. And so I, I can do that as well. That's another thing that's uh, another gift that we can give ourselves. And that's, that's visualization. That's finding a sanctuary. Now that sanctuary, you know, can be up here. That means I can be anywhere. And if I feel really stressed out, right, and I just need to calm myself and I need to get away the chaos for a moment, I can actually sit and close my eyes and I can visualize. I can visualize any scene that I want to. I can visualize sitting on the beach. I can visualize the warm sun. I can visualize the person that I miss is sitting next to me. And so I can create that sanctuary that I want to, and I can actually visualize it. I can be there away from everything else. And then when I feel calmer, I can bring, come back to this world again. And so those techniques are really, really good for health. Um, 
And I think we've talked about some of those things, but exercise certainly, the endorphins, feeling good, connected. Um, body scan, where I feel connected to my body again. So um, oftentimes if we feel chaotic and we feel disorganized and stuff, just grounding ourselves can be helpful as well. So the other pieces to mental health that I really focus in on is also understanding, you know, what it takes to, um, you know, the thoughts that we have and who we are, you know, down to our kind of our, our core beliefs and and what does that mean? I mean, our, the core beliefs are things that we tell ourselves. It's the things that we, the lens that we look through at life. And if we tell ourselves negative things over a period of time, we start believing them. If I tell myself positive things over time, then that believe that becomes the lens I look at the world through. So I can look at it through a negative through a negative sense and say it's not going to get any better. Uh, we're going to go out of COVID and it's going to be terrible. I've lost all this stuff. We're never going to get things back. And I look in the past, or I can look in a positive way and say things are possibilities. And every possibility that opens up, I got a chance at a new beginning and a new world. And so always open those possibilities. And then last but not least, I think just um, dealing with what does it mean to be mentally healthy? And I think the definition of that is a sense of well-being on who you are, finding that sense of well-being. It's not about diagnosis. It's about a sense of well-being on who you are. That means that I can be productive. I can handle normal stresses. I can be in relationships, and I can be part of a community. There's that sense of well-being right here um, that can get me there. Not worried about you know what other people think, but worried about who I am. And so my my value systems, you know, the way I see things. And, and to me, that's, there's four parts to that. That's, you know, the relationships we have with ourselves, you know, how I view myself, the relationship we have with others and how we treat and view others and what we do. And then also the spiritual world that we have that's uh, above us and, and, um, and in us. And then we also have, you know, the, the relationship with the physical world. We are here today um, in this COVID world right now. Um, that's a reality. And we have to deal with that. Um, but we should be um, a whole person and deal with each one of those relationships, not get stuck on one that dominates. And so we're not balanced as a whole person. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.